All right. Welcome back to the show, lifeinredpodcast.com, at lifeinredpodcast on Facebook and Instagram, and lifeinredpod on Twitter. Uh, my guest today, we had a great conversation, as always. I think I say that on every intro. I should probably tighten that up. But uh, we both connected being um, unsinkable community champions. And if you're unfamiliar with the organization that is unsinkable, definitely go check them out. Um, they are a, a mental health uh, initiative, community resource, lots of great things happening there, lots of great stories. And uh, I, myself, am a community champion uh, slash ambassador for the organization, do a lot of work with them. And so is this guest. And he has a, a pretty unique story that kind of goes in two directions, but it, it, that comes and meets in the middle into everything that he does. Um, he was diagnosed with ADHD as a child um, and then suffered from concussions. And then those both linked up as he was growing up uh, and he had a lot of struggles. And uh, I learned a lot, especially with ADHD, because that's one of those diagnosis that kind of get thrown around sometimes, but I don't think the general population really understand what it means. So I think it was really important to to elaborate a little bit about that. We also talk about uh, toxic masculinity, mental health, and a whole bunch of different things. And uh, he he's very wise. He has a lot of insight. Uh, he's well-read, Does has done a ton of research. So um, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Please give it up for my guest, Dave body. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. When I said we should uh, get together and do this again, Little did I know we'd be meeting the very next day because I'm an idiot and uh, accidentally had deleted the entire files of our conversation. So thank you for respecting my time. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> like, hey, man, I know you just spent an hour and a half with me and uh, now we have to do it all again. But uh, Dave, man, thank you. I, one, I appreciate the time and the opportunity to talk to you again because you had a great start. We had a great conversation yesterday and uh, Though I know your story now, I think that's going to offer a little bit more of a directive and, uh, I guess, kind of like insight and, and elaboration on some of the things we talked about. So uh, again, there's yeah, a blessing there somewhere. There's a yeah, blessing. Somewhere. I'm hoping. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'll start with the kind of the same question because you, the thing about your story is, it's so vast. Like you have so many different experiences, especially when it comes to mental health. Like we talked about the bullying. We talked about uh, toxic masculinity. We talked about a whole bunch of things, but there's like these, these two kind of, they start out kind of like parallel to each other and then they kind of intersect and, and that's where it starts. The story really starts to blossom. So we'll go back to that story in 1997 um, when you were first diagnosed with ADHD. So I want you to kind of describe if you can, what you were going through at that time and how, how, the diagnosis of, of ADHD maybe helped you in a way? Totally. Uh, the diagnosis did help me a lot because it gave me a name to what I was dealing with because beforehand I was constantly accused of being lazy, unmotivated. Um, I even had a teacher in grade four tell me that I would never amount to anything, which as a young child affected me 
dramatically. And actually, it, be, it became my belief system for a long time where I was like, yeah, maybe she's right. Maybe I won't amount to anything. On top of the ADHD, um, I was also dealing with my first concussion when I was around four or five, which happened just from a house accident, play wrestling with my dad. And I didn't realize just how pivotal concussions would be in my life and how they would connect with ADHD because a lot of research currently has been finding that individuals who have ADHD are not only more susceptible to concussions, but the concussions could increase the intensity of the ADHD symptoms. So when I had my first concussion, I didn't realize it was going to be a serious situation. Um, it actually gave me a lot of attention because when the concussion happened, I popped blood vessels in the right side of my head. So the part where I hit my head, you can actually press on. And it's like a, it was like a push, uh, a push sneaker where you can pump it. Like it's just a lot of kids thought it was funny. I was like, hey, I'm getting attention. And it wasn't for the right reasons, obviously. It was just because it was funny. But growing up with ADHD and not knowing you have it, is extremely frustrating because you spend your time wondering if you are stupid or if you are forgetful or you, if, if you are what people are telling you are. So I had a whole battle with that where I'm like, am I stupid or am I forgetful? This is me. This is who I am. So I just developed that as a belief system. And when the teacher said, I will never amount to anything, I believed it. And that became my belief core for many, many years. So when I got diagnosed in 1997, I believe it was a six-month process. Uh, there's a lot of misconception that ADHD diagnosis is quick, but it's not. It's, it's about six-month process. My son's going through it right now. We just started it last week, and he has to wait two to four months to see his, his pediatrician to begin the process. So it, it's a long process. And one of the most common misconceptions with ADHD is that it was created by the big farm to make money. And the realistic uh, approach with it is speak to people who have it and we'll tell you our stories and we'll tell you how it's not something that we wish upon anyone because it is a disability. It, it offers a lot of struggles. Um, it offers a lot of good things too. Like I'm very creative. I'm very passionate. I'm very loyal. Being that I've overcome and I still struggle or battle daily with some of the stuff, it builds resiliency and strength. And I think one of the biggest issues, the biggest struggles people have with mental health and being neurodivergent is the way that social, uh, sorry, the way that society reacts to it, where you say, I have ADHD and they say, ah, it's whatever, you're just lazy or that's just an excuse. And, or my favorite one is it's all in your head. And it's like, that's not wrong. <laughs> ADHD is in my head. It's in my brain. So you're not wrong with that assessment, but it's just the sarcastic tone that they, they use it with. So I would say that beyond the ADHD struggle, the teachers and the school system made it very difficult for me. I remember when I was in high school, I was doing math and math has always been a struggle for mine. And then I found out that there's a recent study in 2015 that they found that 11% of children who have ADHD have dyscalculia. This, I can never say it correctly. Dyscalculia. It's like the dyslexia of math. Mm. And I was like, holy cow, that, that explains everything to why I would literally have mental breakdowns in school when it comes to like step-by-step -step, um, questions. Like Mary had 33 apples and she gave this many to this person. And those things you lose me within the first two sentences. And it was a struggle. It definitely was. But when I got diagnosed, it was a lot of help because the teachers were like, oh, 
this is not just Dave being lazy. There's an actual reason for this. And the reason why my diagnosis happened was when my grandmother's told my dad, hey, you should get Dave tested because he's showing symptoms. And then the funny part is my dad hasn't. He never knew he had it until I got diagnosed. And he's like, wait a minute. And then it's just, it just, it helped me so much to get that diagnosis because it gave a name to what I was dealing with. And then I was, I was given more help actually. When I got diagnosed, the school system was like, okay, let's help him. And um, I remember I, I was about to drop out in grade nine because I just, I was so fed up, but I was like, no, I want to graduate. Like I, I do not want that in my conscience. And then I realized that I would be the first person in my family to graduate which pushed me a lot more too, where it's like, you know what? I want that personal accomplishment. And just to prove people wrong that even though I have a mental health illness, I still, with a lot more hard work, and a lot more focus, ironically, I could do it and I did it. So, but if I had not got that diagnosis in 97, I probably not would have been able to graduate. One of the things about ADHD is I go back to when I was a kid, it wasn't really talked about if at all, maybe ADD was, was more of a common thing that people talked about. But I think back to some of the, the kids I went to school with and, you know, they, maybe they were, they were hyperactive or they had struggles or, but it was always thought like they were just a disruption. They were the class clown. They were, they, they were, you know, the, it was just their behavior, their attitude. Like they, they didn't really have, they, they could control that. That was like the common thoughts. So you'd get them in trouble. You'd send them to the principal's office, you know, work in the resource center, whatever that is. How did, because you mentioned a couple of times, like I thought you were lazy. How does ADHD typically present? Because I think that might be one of the biggest misconceptions. Like, is it, is it that you're lazy? Is it that you're hyperactive? You know, is it a bit of both? Like how, how does ADHD kind of work? So there's three um, sections, if you will, like three categories. There's hyperactive and then there's inattentive and then there's combined. Um, with ADHD, just like many other illnesses, it can affect people differently. It can affect people more severely, more moderately or more minorly. For my case, I was moderate affection, meaning that I was, I was a combination for example, right now, if you look at me, you see me shaking. That's because mm-hmm. I can't sit still. I have to always be doing something. Otherwise, I get up and uh, my fiance, Claudia, hates when I'm on the phone because I don't sit still. I, I literally walk through the house. And I think there's, there's even times where I'll like climb up on top of my chair and climb down because it's like I can't stay still. And then my inattentiveness is... It leads to a very stressful conversation for a lot of people because you say, I can't focus on this. And people are like, well, I do that all the time. I, I lose focus or I get bored. And it's like, yes, that is true. However, the difference with, the, with, the, with ADHD and not having ADHD is I physically and mentally cannot sit through a lecture. I will risk failure. I will risk getting kicked out of the school. Getting, I will do whatever I can to not have to be in that position. So it becomes like mental torture where if I'm, for example, in math class, I literally would have a mental breakdown because I would become so overwhelmed and I would do anything to get out of that experience and to get away from that environment because I medically could not sit down and focus. 
regardless of how much the teacher yelled at me or threatened this, you know, detention, it just nothing worked because it was a mental blockage. It wasn't something that I could control. Just like if you're too short and you want to play a certain sport, but the coach is like, no, no, you're too short. Well, you, you know, you, you can't bully someone for being too short. Like they have no control over that. And that's how I feel with ADHD, where it's like, listen, you can judge me, belittle me all you want. It's not going to change the fact that I have a mental health illness. So either you can support me and understand it, or you can help me. And when I got the diagnosis, I went through a lot of testing and they, they realized, okay, Dave is a combination of both because ADD is, is something that you don't hear often no more mm-hmm. because now they separate with hyperactivity, inattentiveness and com- combination. So ADD is it's you'll hear by some people, but most people who are experienced with ADHD awareness know that, okay, ADD is not something that's spoken about because now it's hyperactive or inattentive or combined. So it, it, it definitely affects people differently. For example, my father has ADHD. I have ADHD and all three of my sisters or four of my sisters have ADHD as well, but we all deal with it differently. For example, I have never been medicated for ADHD. I'm medicated for anxiety, but my sister's been has been medicated for ADHD for many, many, many years because hers was a lot more extreme than mine. So it's definitely a case by case situation. And I think that that's a misconception for a lot of people in the general public is they don't understand that it is case by case, just like autism. You know, the, you know, there's different ways of showing you that you have a mental health illness. And I think it's very important. People know that. How does it affect you now as an adult? Because I think, it's one thing to talk about ADHD as a, as a child. And I think that's at least from what I've seen, who's kind of outside of that, that community in a way that most people talk about it in children. And then as you grow up and, and become an adult and in society as, you know, working family, like it almost seems like, like that conversation really goes away. So like how, I mean, you, you mentioned the shaking, like how does it affect you now? And what are some of the things that you do to try to lessen the, 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 the symptoms, lessen, you know, how it affects your, your everyday life. It definitely, I found that some of my symptoms as a child didn't go away, but they're less common because I just became conditioned with society and how society expects us all to be a certain way. However, for example, I legit cannot, handled the idea of doing a nine to five job. Hmm. The idea of sitting at a desk all day, answering phones, it legit makes me like anxiety increased. Um, I have to do something that's physical. I have to do something that allows me to walk around, but most importantly, I have to do something that allows me to be creative. If I'm not in an environment where I can't be creative or I can't align with passion, I physically become so uncomfortable and I did it for many years working at jobs. I could not stand, but I was just focusing that mindset of I need money to take care of my kids and pay the bills. But as a result of that, I became so stressed. I became so miserable that my health became very negatively affected in the sense that I was being tested for fibromyalgia. I was being tested for early signs of Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. I was being tested for collagen's disease because I had so much anxiety and so much stress of being put in a position where I legit could not feel creative, passionate, or happy. So I feel individuals who have ADHD as adults, that's probably the biggest struggle is you're put in environments where you are forced to be something you're not 
but then when you go home you just break down because you're so like i remember i would come home from work and i was just mentally drained because the whole day i kept thinking of how can i get out of this experience how can i leave this and be happy again so as an adult you have a lot more struggles i find because you have bills you have taxes responsibilities owning a home you have a lot more expected from you as an adult and other adults who don't have a mental health illness are usually not that supportive especially if it's in an environment of where you're quickly forced to work and get work done. They're like, Oh, just stop making excuses to get the work done. Or I've, you know, I've had supervisors say you're making excuses again, either, you know, pull their socks up and man up or quit. So it just, it puts you in a position where you're just like, okay, I realize society as a majority don't support mental health, even though their businesses say they do, or even though schools say they do when it comes time to actually do the support, I find a lot of people fail and because they, they look at you as an employee as opposed to a person. And so that was my biggest struggle with ADHD is, is keeping a job. Like I could not keep a job that I could not be happy with. And that's when I found public speaking and writing and coaching. And I was like, okay, this is where I want to be. Like I have to constantly be aligned with my passion. Otherwise I just lose interest and I become stressed. It's like being put in a position where you feel uncomfortable and being told you have to stay in that position for anybody. You'll be, you know, you'll have a mental breakdown. So currently what I do to help with that is a, I make sure anything I'm doing is aligned with my values and my passion. If it's not, I don't do it. It's a very, it leads to a lot of uh, uncomfortable conversations with people because they're like, well, you need to pay your bills. You need this. I'm like, yeah, I'm aware of my responsibilities. But I'm also aware to get those responsibilities done, I had to be ha- you know, happy. I had to be fulfilled. I had to be in a good position mentally. So I had to find that, that good partnership, if you will. Um, I meditate twice a day. I eat healthy. I, I work out every single day. I read. I'm constantly reading, which is kind of a, an irony considering ADHD allows you to not be able to focus unless you're passionate about something. So if I'm reading a book that I'm loving, I can read that book and become so hyper-focused and finish it within two days. Mm. So it's just the main struggle I had growing up was finding that balance of taking care of my responsibilities, you know, taking care of my kids, but also being happy, which I find is a struggle that anyone has nowadays. Mm. Even if you don't have a mental health, like everyone's struggling with that, but it's just a matter of being gung-ho it's a matter of being like no this is my life this is how i'm going to live it if you don't support it leave like you eventually become to that mindset of i don't care about drama i don't care about personal opinions i don't care how you feel because long story short i have to make sure my mental health is a priority and as a result that i've lost a lot of friendships but then i realized you know that was a blessing in disguise because i found that when i was around those people I wasn't really belonging. I was fitting in. And I always say that when you're fitting in, you're losing who you are because you have to adapt to who you're around with. As opposed to if you're belonging, that means you're accepted hundred percent. So I just, I basically closed myself off and I was like, okay, this is what I need to be happy. This is what I need to do to be happy. And if anyone disagrees with that, then bye. And I know it sounds like such a jerk of a mindset, but it's because it's necessary I have to make sure that my mental health is a priority. And if people who are around me don't agree with that, they increase my anxiety. Like mm-hmm. if I get a message from so-and-so and I feel my heart beat faster, I feel like, oh, now what? That's not good for anybody. 
So trust me, sometimes you have to be selfish and be like, no, this is not being selfish. This is self-care. So that's my biggest go home for helping me is focusing on self-care a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. I, one of the things you mentioned about companies caring about mental health and, you know, as like someone who, who manages people, the, the balance between the business needs and the mental health is such a, it's so delicate. It's so interesting. And, but you know, one of the big things I believe in is like educating because I can educate on my experience. You know, I've had rough run-ins when I've been in a depressive episode and getting in trouble rather than getting help. Um, It's, it it gets tough. And then, you know, when you you speak about neurodivergent people, I mean, that's even, I, I would say less, understood in the workplace because you know everyone has their kind of cookie cutter employee and you know this is what fits the box of a good employee and they're you know they're they're social and they're good team players and they're you know they're whatever you you use as an adjective but you know sometimes that might not be the strength of a neurodivergent person whereas they have other strengths that someone who i would quote unquote you know who's not that way they they might not have right and and it's educating our our management and educating leaders on on what those are and how to to best support that another thing you kind of mentioned in there protecting your energy i find that particularly interesting i heard a Awesome quote. So maybe this is the the blessing in disguise. You can have this more insightful conversation. <laughs> but I heard a quote last night at, on on TikTok, and it was like, "What would you do if you were to die? Like you knew on this day in five years you were going to die. So you know because in one year you would say, well, I'm just going to party. I'm going to travel. I'm going to live my life. But five years that like kind of like a sweet spot where you can't give everything up and just do what you want. You still have to kind of have some structure. And they were talking about the person talked about, you know, I wouldn't change a thing because everything I do is aligned with, with my, with my systems, with my goals, with my values. And I love that you said that that's a really interesting thing. And that's something I've really tried to develop this past, you know, this past year, especially during the pandemic is making sure that what I do and who I associate with and who, what gets my energy is aligned with my goals and aligned with who I am as a person. And I don't know how, was it a, a light bulb moment for you? Was it a lot of years of trial and error to get to that point? Cause I, I don't think enough people do that. It was definitely easier said than done for a while. Yeah. It was uh, a matter of self-evaluating and seeing, okay. And just going through a checklist of, okay, this person, how's this person make me feel? How's this person help me towards my goals or my ambitions, or my passions, or how's this person try to understand what I'm struggling with? And that's basically what I did it with. And then I remember one time I had over 4,500 friends on Facebook and I only engaged with maybe 90 of them, maybe a hundred tops. And I, that's when it clicked for me. I was like, you know what? I'm focusing more on quality than I am quantity. And as a result of that, I'm finding more stress because I was measuring my comments and my status is so much based on likes and engagement. And I was like, okay, I have 4,500 plus friends, but I'm only getting like 20 to 30 likes, if that. And that's what I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like, why am I putting so much value into likes and comments and 
quality of, or sorry, quantity of friends. And then I just realized I'm wasting a lot of time right now. Like the amount of energy that people don't understand that they're wasting every tweet you put out, you're putting energy into that tweet. You're putting energy into the engagements that you get from that tweet. Um, every comment you put on someone else's tweet is, is energy being used because you're waiting for other people to comment to your comment or you're having anxiety saying, okay, who's going to comment back on this tweet? So I tell people all the time that even social media plays a huge factor in your energy use because every time you put a comment, a status or something that's engaging, you're waiting for something to turn into either a negative experience. So you're constantly just using energy while you're not even using it. And the thing that people don't understand is there's physical energy and then there's mental energy. And a lot of societies just focus on the physical energy. Like, well, you're not doing anything. You're just sitting down. Well, that's because I'm thinking. And it's been proven that mental exertion can lead to diseases and illnesses a lot more than physical can. Because when you're sitting there ruminating and you're thinking negatively the entire time, your body's reacting with a negative emotion like sadness, guilt, anger, frustration. So I'm like, people, you have to understand that mental exertion is a huge factor towards your health. So I had to understand how do people make me feel? Do I get anxiety when I get a text message from them? Do I get anxiety when they comment? My, my favorite ones are the ones that follow you on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, but they never, ever congratulate you. But they're always there to argue. They're always there to have a negative input. Those people I block right away. I have a rule that if I um, exchange friendship with you on Facebook or like you follow me, I follow you. If we don't engage for three weeks or you don't have any positive influence on me, I just remove you. And that's why I restarted my Twitter. I had over... I had over 6,000 tweets in my old Twitter and I had almost 800 followers. And I'm like, I'm finding no value from this. I was like, it's just so much negativity and so much drama. So I restarted all my social media, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, uh, Instagram, Snapchat, restarted all of it. Cause I'm like, you know what? I only want quality, no more quantity. I only have 50, like 53 followers on Twitter. And I'm okay with that because the 53 people that are following me are aligned with me. Mm -hmm. And if you make the race about, I need a thousand followers. Okay. Well, you're going to have to sacrifice some of your, your mental health then for that, because all those people that you're going to want to follow back are not going to be aligned with you. So long-term they're not going to benefit you. Like um, I got a recent follow from Biff naked. And I was like, yes, she has a blue check mark. She's amazing because yeah, she's, she's awesome. a, I love Biff naked. So when she followed me back, I was extremely excited. You know, her one follow means more to me than a thousand because her one follow is like, okay, she supports what I'm speaking about and I support what she's speaking about. And that's what I want. So it's all about quant. Uh, it's all about quality. No more quantity. Uh, no more. I want a thousand. Now I understand some industries, they look for that. Like for example, in acting, they look for profiles that have 10,000, 20,000. So I get in some <clears> industries, <throat> it's a lot easier said than done, but it, it, but it just comes down to what's more important to you getting that, that one acting role that can give you some money that's temporary or consistently taking care of your mental health. And then long-term realizing, oh my God, I now have 10,000 followers, but each single one aligns with me. And I look forward to engaging with them. And my old Twitter, I had so many followers that caused me so much anxiety. Like when I saw their tweets, I was like, mm, I don't know if I like that energy. What do I do? Well, if I block them, it may make them upset. I didn't care no more. 
I, I learned that when I had so much pressure from other people's happiness on my shoulders, it was not benefiting me. So I did a lot of research and I'm like, you know what? This idea that we use other people to try to find our happiness is so counterproductive because we can influence each other. We can, you know, I can, I can help influence your happiness, but to put your happiness on my shoulders as for me to be like, okay, I'm in charge of Ryan's happiness hundred percent. That's not fair to me. That's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work. Like it, it's hard for me to find my own happiness some days. Like it's hard for me to, to take care of myself and to, you know, add other people's opinions and beliefs to my shoulders. I'm like, you know what? I'm done. Like I was exerting so much mental energy that it got to the point where I had to restart and refresh. And it was the best thing for me. I had a friend of mine message me. He's like, Hey Dave, I'm thinking about restarting my Facebook and my Twitter. I was like, the fact that you're thinking about it means you should do it mm-hmm. because that's, that's your mental health saying, you know what, this is, this is something we need to do. I'm like, so don't hesitate, just do it. I'm like, it's the best feeling in the world. Like as soon as I restarted my Facebook, which I had 4,500 followers plus when I restarted it, I was like, this was the best thing for me. So it just always make sure your mental health is the main priority for anything that you do, because it's just not worth it long-term. It's just like, I became addicted to tile, uh, sorry, to Advil liquid gels in 2009. I was taking 18 to 22 pills a day because I was, I was just, I was so miserable. I was dealing with a lot of body pain that I just, I needed pills from Advil because I love Advil liquid gels, but I, I uh, it got so bad that my spleen became enlarged by 13 inches and just a lot of health stuff happened. And that was 2009. And I didn't make all these changes till 2019. So that was 10 years of growth and evolution that I had to like go through to get to this mindset. However, if I'm able to help someone now develop the mindset of self-care, then I will do it because it's like, it needs to be done fast. It's runs counterintuitive to everything they, they kind of tell us, you know, measuring success based on how many likes we get, how many followers we have, you know, that's what so many people are chasing and then not realizing that once you, you know, I see it now with like influencers or, or YouTubers that they reach this kind of critical mass where that's where like the hate and the trolls come, right? We have a saying in mm-hmm. media and, and I know you're familiar with acting that you, know, you haven't made it until somebody hates you. Um, and like people always chase that until the point where, you know, their post goes viral or they, they get the following that they've, they've been chasing. And then all of a sudden that's where like, that's where the shit comes. That's where the trolls come out. That's where the, you know, the really nasty people of society find you. And then they start, you know, trolling and it just, you see it. They, cause you see it in their posts, like the mental health deteriorates and what people don't understand about it is stress and anxiety and and all these negative emotions we we see we we get from whether it's from working that nine to five in a stressful job or having toxic people surround us whatever it is that 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 also not only does it create that mental kind of strain but it manifests itself in your body physically as well and a lot of people don't understand understand that that you know if you're always stressed your body will will suffer you can get like cancers from it like ulcer like moderate to severe illnesses just from stress and they uh-huh. say like that stress is one of like the most uh 
it's uh, i wish i remember like the the quote it's like one of it's the a most, silent killer yeah like and it's one of the most like the health risks of it like it was like something like it's like one of the most like powerful health risks of our time or something like that it was just it was a big deal um i do want to get to the concussion aspect of your story because it's important to note that and it really intersects with what we were talking about about the ADHD and, and mental health and, and all those different things. So, I mean, you've been put through the ringer. You have suffered, how many is it? 15, one five. That, to me, that is absolutely, like, that's bonkers. Like, that is a huge number, <laughs> you know, and that's a scary, that's a scary it's not, number. It's not a proud flex for, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I've had concussions. Um, I, I know t- two for sure, probably more, who knows. But the, my first big one is like, uh, it's not even something cool. I was playing flag football in gym class and I went to like catch a ball and I just tripped over my feet and smashed my head. I knocked myself out. I got up. I looked to, to like the everybody as they're like looking in shock. I'm like, did I catch it? And then I collapsed again. And then when I got up after, after that, I, I like, it felt like I was high. Like everything was blurry. Everything was like clouded. Like I'm like woozy. I'm like, Whoa, like everything's slow motion. You mentioned you got your first one when you were four. So you probably don't remember that. From the time you got your first concussion and, and moving through, you know, to four, five, six, to 13, 14, 15, you know, do you, do you remember all of them? Like, did they all negative, like, was it negatively affecting you, like getting worse and worse and worse as it went along? What's the, the story of this journey through concussions? So I do remember majority of them. However, I don't remember them in sequence, meaning that I have visual flashbacks that are just random. Like there's triggers. For example, when I visited the last site that I had my last concussion on, I had some visuals, some like flashbacks. I was like, oh, I didn't know I remembered that. Um, My last concussion was 10 years ago, almost to the date it was march 13th was my last one 2011 so it's coming up for like the 10 year anniversary however i remember every concussion i did sustain the symptoms worsened by length of time i experienced them or new ones um it's so hard to remember the sequence of order because like i said it's all like like a giant puzzle piece and the puzzle Mm -hmm. pieces are just everywhere however i do remember the the most pivotal one was my 20th birthday. I call it my birthday beat concussion where it was January 22nd, 2006. I got hit in the head with a shovel three times during a robbery. That one led to me losing my professional wrestling career. Um, it led to a battle of suicide ideation, uh, hallucinations, which is a very, it, it's usually a very uncommon symptom, but my hallucinations were so bad where that's the wildest would, one to me. Yeah. Like I would visualize, I would think I seen a girl run across the street or I would think I seen someone behind me and I was like, Whoa, there's nothing there. And it would take me seconds to understand that there's nothing there. So that was very scary. Uh, the hallucinations, I could never explain them without sending like I was foolish, but I was like, no, no, I swear I saw something. And they're like, Dave, there's nothing there. Or there's moments where I would put my head in the freezer and just stand there and totally forget why I was in the freezer. It was getting to the point that my emotions were out of control. Um, I was experiencing symptoms of, I call it emotional instability. 
But then I would also call emotional blackouts because I would have no recollection of throwing a couch against a wall. I had no recollection of punching walls. I had no memories of me doing this, but I saw the holes in the wall and was like, okay, I did that. I don't remember doing it. So it was getting to the point where I was scared of who I was. And the biggest setback for me was at the time my, my concussions were happening. My first one was 1990, 1991. So at that time, there was no discussion about concussions. It was a, oh, you just rang your head or no, sorry, you, uh, you rang your bell or you just, whatever they, they would, you know, coin it as, but it was never a concussion. So majority of my concussions from concussion number one to concussion 14 were not dealt with correctly. I even had two concussions that happened within minutes of each other, which is a serious risk because that can cause blood or brain swelling and that can cause death. So I was like, comparatively to what has happened to other people, I got off lucky, to be honest with you. Uh, with all the research with CTE, all the research of dementia, and all these other things that are happening as a result of concussions. Um, in 2020, in 2019, I saw my neurologist because I, I, I started to experience a lot more symptoms like dizziness, headaches, uh, memory issues, focus issues, which could be relevant to ADHD as well. And that's the confusion with me where... They're like, is this ADHD symptoms getting worse or is this concussion symptoms getting worse? They don't really know. And she said that my concussion symptoms are definitely present still. So she said I might have what's called permanent PCS, which is permanent post-concussion syndrome, but there's not enough research to back that up yet. So they're like, we don't know if this can be permanent. This could be years. We, we don't know your future. And I'm like, well, that's scary because she said that as I get older, my symptoms could worsen. She also said that she's going to watch me for early signs of CTE because they found that you can get early signs at the ages of 30 to 40 and I'm 35. So they're like, we'll keep an eye on that. She's like, I don't think you do have it, but we'll keep an eye on it because honestly, my symptoms are present, but they're not to the extent that it has been for NFL players or for Chris Benoit or for Mr. Fuji and Jimmy Snuka, like all the other people who have been diagnosed with CTE. I haven't shown any of those intense symptoms, which I'm really blessed with. But every concussion I had, I had different symptoms. I had different time frames for symptoms. Sometimes I had immediate symptoms where I would vomit immediately. Or there's times where I would have several days where I felt okay, a little bit foggy. But then all of a sudden, boom, the seventh day, I started to feel massive headaches. Like I had what was called mechanical headaches, which is also a result of neck injuries where your entire day that you're standing, gravity, uh, gravity is pulling on your neck muscles because it's pulling you down. So when you lay down to relax, the muscles relax. And as a result of that, it can cause headaches or pain. Mm-hmm. So I was dealing with a, dealing with a, lot, a lot of those. And I was like, okay, these are painful because it's the entire back of your neck. Um but the research for concussions that I went through when I was in brain rehab for five months and the awareness that we have now, I'm so thankful for it because there is so much risk for how my, my um, recovery plan was like here, here, you know, take some Advil and go relax. That that's all my recovery, my, my recovery was until WCB is like, wait a minute, we know it's a pattern here with your concussions. You need help. And I was like, thank you. Cause it's been 14 concussions of me just, dealing with stuff and not having any support with it. So when I got admitted to brain injury rehab, that's where I got diagnosed with dysthemia, which is chronic depression. 
I got diagnosed with hypochondria, which is also known as, as illness anxiety. I got diagnosed with misophonia. Misophonia was first found in 2001. So it's still a, a misunderstood illness. Like they, they haven't even acknowledged it as an illness or disability yet. But basically what, what misophonia is, it's extreme sensitivity to sound. So for example, if I have someone beside me eating with their mouth open, it gets me into an rage where I'm like, I want to hurt you or leave like now. Um, horse, horse hooves on the, on the, on the ground that I can't handle that. Um, I can't watch basketball because the sneakers on the court squeaking drives me batty. Um, keyboard striking. So it's basically very sensitive to sounds and what it does is it triggers you emotionally or physically where you can become very enraged and be like oh my god i gotta leave now or you can start shaking so that is that right there in itself is a struggle some days because i homeschool both my kids and they both use computers so that with the keyboard i'm like okay turn the music on like i need something in the background to help distract me but most definitely concussions is a case-by-case thing so my 15 concussions can't be compared to Sidney Crosby or Peter Forberg or Mario Lemieux or the average Joe. It's case by case, just like ADHD. You know, in the, in the most recent years, as we're learning more about brain injuries and, and concussions, um, you see it a lot with sports and it's this, especially like the mental impacts of it. So the, you know, the, the depression, the anxiety, the suicidal ideation. Some of the the most dramatic stories come from the suicides or the, you know, when you, you mentioned Chris Benoit, who's probably one of the most famous stories. And uh, for those who don't know, he's a wrestler who um, killed his, his wife, his daughter, and then killed himself. And, and after the autopsy, they found the CTE. So they likely saw that was, that was probably the contributing factor to it. Um, and then, you know, the other case, too, is Aaron Hernandez, who after he committed double murder and they studied his brain, realized that it was just full of brain injuries. And it's creating that link between having their brain injured with CTE and then with these very violent and extreme types of behaviors and, and, and actions. Before you had these concussions and, and going through it, did you have any of the symptoms of depression of anxiety of suicidal ideation or was that brand new brought on by the concussions that's a tough answer because i had my first concussion when i was four or five right then i had the diagnosis of adhd in 97 and during that period i was dealing with a lot of depression right i don't know if that's because i think the safest way to say is i was dealing with a lot of lack of confidence a lot of lack of self-esteem, a lot of depression. And I would say that the concussion definitely probably helped with the increase of it. Plus my experiences in my life was also a huge contributing factor to it. But that's why I, I have pledged my brain for donation to, to the Concussion Legacy Foundation because it's like, um, I know Chris Nowinski was a former WWE superstar and he had his concussion and that's why he started the CLF. And they've tested so many brains and like with, like you mentioned Benoit with when you murdered his wife and his son, Daniel, um, his son, Daniel was like seven, I believe. And he had, uh, he had health issues too, but with Benoit, it was just when they, 
shared his brain results. They said it was comparable to an 85-year-old man with dementia or Alzheimer's. And he was in his 40s. So I was like, and people were like, oh my God, you're making excuses for you. I'm like, no, I'm not making excuses for anything that he did. I'm sharing reasons that could have led to why he did what he did. And being someone who battled with that personally, not to the, to the same extreme, but it could have went to the same extreme if I didn't get help. And then you mentioned Aaron Hernandez, which was 27 years old and had stage four CTE when stage four CTE is usually not found until 50 or 60 years old. So I was like, I can't even watch UFC. Like I can't watch UFC Mm -hmm. or boxing because when I see people get hit in the head, I cringe. Um, There was that one boxer a couple of years ago that that died in the ring. Right. Because he took a couple of blows to the head and said he was fine. And then he collapsed and died. So it's like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with boxing where the reason why they increased from 10 rounds to 12 rounds is because of concussion. They felt that if you increased it by two rounds with more rest periods, they would help deplete the concussion rate. And I was like, okay, I guess that makes sense in a way, but you can see football is trying to make some changes, but it's like, no matter what changes you make in football, it's not going to change concussions. There's no helmet you can create that can 100% guarantee a concussion profession. Like you have 230 plus pound men full throttle hitting each other. And it's like, there's no way to prevent this. Same thing with hockey, with, uh, you know, Sidney Crosby. People were like, why is he taking so long to recover? Because concussions are varied. Some people have serious concussions. Some people have minors. Um, so it's just, it's a conversation that is definitely happening a lot. However, I feel, I still feel that a lot of brands and businesses and sports are failing to take 100% um, care for the individuals that have concussions. Like, for example, there's been a lot of rumors that in the past NHL would cover concussions up as illnesses like flus. They say, Oh no, he didn't have a concussion. He just had a flu because of the contractual reasons and media reasons, like so much business reasons that I was just like, you know what? Stop the BS because like you're risking so many people's lives right now for a sport. And that's why I say, no matter what sport it is, no matter what game it is, it's not worth your long-term or short-term health. So I honestly feel that, in the case that it's proven that a coach or a member of the team's faculty ignored someone's concussion and forced them to play, they should be criminally charged because enough's enough. Like we know the risks and we know what needs to be done to stop the risk. Like recently in soccer, they had a person suffer concussion. Actually, I think both of them suffered concussion because they both hit their heads trying to hit the ball and they subbed one. And the other one, they took them out for, one sit and put them back in. And it's like, what are you doing? And like, I mentioned that sometimes concussion symptoms can take several days to show. So if you have a, actually one of the most common symptoms to concussions is the inability to make choices on your own. So for example, if you say, Oh no, no I'm fine. I'm fine. Never trust that because that person could be dealing with brain fog and they just, they don't know what's happening, but they're like, you know what? I have adrenaline. I'm good to go. Never let them go. Like you either remove them right away. As soon as there's suspicion of concussion, you just, you take them off because it's just, the risk is not worth it. And we've lost so many people because of CTE and concussions. And another thing that's very, that's very important to know is that they're finding that CTE is not caused just by concussions. It's caused by repeated, uh, repetitive hits to the head. So if you're playing D lineman or O lineman in football, there's a lot of chances you, you're going to get, you know, helmet to helmet or palm to helmet. Like there's so many chances of getting hit in the head. 
So I'm glad the concussion conversation is happening, but I'm finding just like bullying that there's no prevention. There's just, you know, we support it. We, we share our plastic smiles, but we don't really actually enforce it where this celebrity star, you know, let's say Connor McDavid, for example, who is a huge star for amateur Oilers. Let's say he has a concussion. He's their star player. Will they actually give him the time off that he needs to recover or will they trigger, you know, try to figure out a way to get him back on ice as soon as possible. And that's where the, you know, the, the problem occurs where it's like you're rushing people's recovery so they can fulfill a contract obligation that they sign. But it's just, uh, the, the conversation is there, but we need more support. Yeah. I mean, the NHL has at least done better, you know, when someone says this progress, yep. Um, they have concussion spotters and, you know, they'll call down and be like, you know, you got to take them to the dark room and they have to pass a test. But like, like you said, like symptoms and everything are, are like, they're just so different. And we've seen players now, um, there was Corey Crawford, who, uh, who's a goalie who had concussion, uh, but then he got like post concussion syndrome and it lasted throughout the year. And then he came back for a bit and then he just retired. Cause he's like, my health isn't worth it. You think of Mark Savard who, who got like a huge hit to the head and he still talks about suffering all these years later from post like concussion syndrome. And then you get even more serious with, you mentioned some sports names, but you know, Bob Probert, uh, Bugard, um, Junior Seau, Eddie Guerrero in wrestling. Like you have men who have brain injuries who are committing suicide and you know, that, that just, it creates so much more. So, you know, oh yeah, on the one hand, the brands and the, the teams and, and the leagues have to do more to prevent the players playing when, and, and recover, but it's so hard to know one, the recovery, when, when is it truly recovered? I don't know. You might know if they have an answer, but two, we, as the players, as the people, it's like, we're conditioned to come back as soon as possible mentally you know, even when I had my concussion, like I, three days later, I was like, oh, I'm feeling fine. Like, let's go. And that's like minor hockey. Like, who cares? Why am I risking my health for minor hockey? But I think there's just something. I don't know if it's as men as or as competitive sports players or, or you know, just as humans in general that we want, like, we, we force ourselves back out there for no reason. Like, we, ah, we got to go back and help the team. Oh, I might lose the career, like whatever it is. Like we for like we're almost as much to blame personally sometimes because we're like pushing to get back out there. Almost oh, definitely. Like I remember when I was in pro wrestling and I suffered my two concussions within minutes apart, the first concussion, I was like, yeah, I'm fine. And then I had my second one minute later, my dad's like, no, no, you're done. And I was like, yeah, I, I think I'm done. And I took two weeks off. And then I, um, I read a report in 2018 about a rugby star. And I believe it's in Ottawa or Ontario. I, I'm pretty sure she's from Ottawa. Right. And, um, where she had a concussion, she took a week off, went back, and she said she felt fine. She sustained another concussion, and she died instantly on the field because her first concussion did not heal correctly. And that's why when they say, you know, my concussion healed, it's like based on what evidence because it's case by case. I remember one concussion I had in 2009. I had PCS for almost eight months where I just was not good. I was, I, I went to the hospital four times. I had nosebleeds. 
I had so much symptoms. And then another concussion I had, it was like two to three months. So it, like, it, it definitely varies by how much you've had. But then again, there's numerous articles and numerous research about people who have had one concussion and were vegetative state and had to retire. So it's like with concussions, it's not a matter of like a broken arm where I can guesstimate six to you know four weeks or whatever, or four to eight weeks of recovery with concussions. It's so hit or miss that you can feel fine. And then you can go, you know, ice skate and practice with the team. But as soon as you feel dizzy, as soon as you feel negative, you have to report it. And it comes to the, to the level of you have to create in the environment where every single player is keeping an eye on each other, where it's like, you know what, Ryan wasn't looking good. So I'm going to go tell the coach because I care about him more as a person than as a teammate. So it takes a lot of conditioning to get away from the whole, you have to sacrifice your health for the team. I've always been against that mentality because it's mm. like, okay, so will this team be around in my life when I'm 45 and I'm dealing with PCS and I'm dealing with depression, I'm dealing with, you know, with dementia or any other brain injury that related uh, illness, would they be there for me when I'm 45? Most likely not. So I became, I used to be very driven, like, oh yeah, team effort, team this. But then the more injuries I sustained, and the more I realized long-term how this is going to affect me, I said, you know what? I'm done. Like, I can't keep doing this to myself with this false hope that when I'm 45, this team will be here for me or this coaching staff will be here for me. So it's a matter of having that perspective of this is now, but will the team be here for me when I'm 45? No. So yeah. should I sacrifice my life now and my health now? knowing that these, these people will not be here for me in 20 years. No, I'm not going to do it. Um, there was a video that went viral of a female coach um, talking to a female player. I believe it was volleyball or basketball. And the player's like, no, I'm not doing good. I have to take a week off. And the female coach is like, no, 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 you're letting your team down. And she was forcing her and it led to her being, I believe she got suspended without pay. And I'm like, that's what you need. You need instant uh, consequences for your actions. Otherwise you have that comfortability of I can do this and get away with it, or I can do this and no one, no one will, you know, will bat an eye at it. So it's like, I'm glad she got immediate consequences. I know Chris Nowinski shared the video on his Twitter and he also is, you know, shares videos from NFL and baseball and he calls everybody out because it's like, you need that accountability. And this whole mindset of my favorite saying is no pain, no gain. I've, I've always, when I was in wrestling and football, that was like a creed where it's like, I believe in this, I'm going to follow it. But now looking back, I'm like, it makes you work against your body as opposed to with it. And it puts you at risk of permanent health or risk of long-term health. And it's like, we need to have that mentality of work with your body as opposed to against it. So if you're working out and you're having a lot of pain, that's generally not a good sign. That means that you're close to straining a muscle. It means your body's communicating. Listen, man, slow down. I remember one day I was working out. I suffered strained ribs. When I was doing an ab, uh, an ab machine at 400 pounds, I was angry. So I was like, I'm going to lift all what I can. My form was so bad that I strained my ribs. And it was all because I was working out with ego as opposed to focus. So when I'm working out, I don't have that ego no more. Where it's like, I'm going to show off and get strong. It's like, no, this is my goal. And... I'm going to work out safely, but that's also because I have 15 concussions and arthritis in my right shoulder and four neck injuries and four back injuries. So it took a lot of lessons to learn this mindset, but my goal is to help people learn it now where 
if you have a concussion and you know you have a concussion, ask yourself, will your team members be there when you have dementia or other serious issues when you're 45? No. So it's not worth it. Yeah, we and especially as like fans and members of the media and and, and of the culture, we glorify that. We glorify the people totally play through injuries and brave and courageous and and everything like that. I did want to mention too, uh, just because when we talked about it yesterday, I couldn't remember um, the the young woman's name. It's Rowan Stringer, and she was from. That's what it is. Okay, yes. um, We actually in in Ontario passed a law called Rowan's Law, where you have Mm -hmm. to pull kids off if they're they're exhibiting um, symptoms. So uh, I wanted to make sure we recognized her and her name and her. Please, yeah, I could not remember her name. Yeah. Um. You know, a lot of what you said is is really interesting, and I always I always go back to that that no pain no gain. I had to learn the lessons too. <laughs> Even this summer, um, when I you know during the pandemic, I I started trying to work out twice a day, and I would go for a run in the morning and lift weights at nights. And like literally the third day, I hurt my back, and I was like, "Fuck it, I'll just push it through and I'll keep going." And then just not got it didn't get any better. Of course, like the. And then I woke up one morning, like I couldn't even move. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I was just like not even taking the time to stretch, not even taking the time to warm up. You just want to go in there. And like you said, lift with ego, not with focus. And fuck it. I'm just going to go in and I'm just going to fucking bitch the press and like rage. And we glorify that too. Yep. And you know, it's, it's so funny. And I, I think as men, we, we do it a lot more than I would say women or non-binary and, and however you self-identify would. And I think that goes to just that thing we kind of talked about earlier. And we've talked about a little bit on social media together is that, that toxic masculinity attitude. And a lot goes into that and you can break it down, but this, this need to feel strong and powerful but attributing that to, to the, the power to physical, to the strength to like overpowering other people to assert our dominance. Whereas like, really like we go back, I, I love that going right back to the conversation about aligning. Like to me, that's a real healthy aspect of masculinity, aligning your life with your values and making sure, you know, your morality is good. But yeah, it's like, I'm not a man if I can't go in and lift that 200 pound bench. You know, I'm not a man if I can't squat 300 pounds. Fuck stretching. That's for bitches. I'm going to go lift heavy. It's just like, I don't know how we became so conditioned with that and made that just a regular part of our life. I mean, um, a friend of mine was struggling with this where he's like, I don't know how to stop trying to focus on getting better and i was like you got to ask yourself who you're trying to get better against and then he's like well there's a lot of people in my life that I want to prove wrong and i was like okay i'm gonna give you one simple quote that's gonna change your life forever and he's like okay i was like you ready he's like yeah i'm like write it down and i even shared on on facebook a while ago legacy over ego the moment you put your legacy before your ego is a moment you can be like I don't care what anyone else thinks. I don't care about impressing other people. I don't care about appealing to other people because the only thing I care about is my legacy and how I'm remembered and how I've impacted, how I've, how I've helped people um, and how I've just made my mental health, my physical health a priority. And that's the thing with this whole 
um, toxic masculinity conversation is it's a bunch of men that are putting their ego over their legacy. And as a result, they're also trying to force other men to follow their certain rules. And as a result, we've created this stupid thing called the man card, where if you don't do something that they consider as manly, they're like, give me your man card. And I'm like, I remember one guy said to me, and I was like, if you believe in such a thing called a man card, I'm like, you are less of a man than you actually believe you are. I was like, because there's no thing as a man card. For example, I'm not handy with tools. I can't build anything. However, if you need me to teach you some self-defense, I can do that. If you need me to teach you some workout strategies, I can do that. So I may not be a man in your eyes because I can't build my own house, but I can be a man that can teach you how to protect it. I can be a man that teach you how to take care of your body and your mind. So it's like this whole, and I believe it comes down to strength and weaknesses and the fact that people want to focus on the weaknesses more than the strength because they feel they're weak. It's like, dude, we all have our weakest strength or weakest strength. You know, it's just a matter of, of unity. Like I am not good at editing. So I will find someone who is and I'll pay them or I'm not good at so-and-so, but this person is good at so-and-so. So I will combine with them. And that's all it is. It's, it's a matter of unity over trying to be better at every, at everything than everyone else where, okay, now you got to sit down and self-reflect. Like, why do you care so much about other people's opinions, which is nor you know, it's normal. We all do it. Like, I'm not saying you can never, ever give a shit. No, no, we all do it. And it's normal to, but it's like, when you compare yourself to other people, you have two choices with that. You can compare with jealousy or you can compare for inspiration. So if I look at someone who's better than me at something, I can say, you know what? They suck. They're terrible, whatever they're showing off. Or I can say, hey, how did they get there? What was their journey to get to be able to bench press a thousand pounds? What did they do? And, you know, you can find that inspiration. So men need to inspire one another more, just like there's that whole female movement of females empowering other females. We need it for men too, where it's like, Hey, Ryan, I see that you are struggling with this situation. I want to help you not because I want something in return, but because I just want to see you succeed. But you know, one of my favorite things to say to people is I want to help you. And the only things I want is you to be happy. That's it. Where it's like, I know I'm better than you at something, but I'm not going to use it as a way to overpower you or belittle you. I'm going to use it a way to say, Hey, but this is something that you can do too, if it aligns with you. And that's the thing with alignment is a lot of men are like, I need to do this better so I can impress Joey, but it doesn't align with you. Is it part of your values? Is it part of your passion? No. Then why do it? Because I got to impress that person. No that's putting your ego over your legacy. And I think it's very important that men realize that like, let's unite and support one another. Stop the men body shaming. Oh, you're too short or you're too fat. Like enough, enough. Like one of my biggest pet peeves is when I see people, uh, men who are overweight going to the gym and I see other men snickering at the person. And it's like, guys, this guy's here on a journey trying to get himself better. And you have two choices here. You can help him or you can kick him when he's down. If you kick him when he's down, that shows me that you are a despicable person that deserves absolutely no respect from me. Or you can be like, you know what, guys, you know, let's go help this guy out. And it's like, that's what we need. We need unity as opposed to this whole, I'm trying to be better than you. For what? For what? Mm -hmm. For me, yeah, being a man is, you know, if I can, if I want to go lift something heavy or chop some wood or, you know, whatever, 
I can, but I can also listen to a musical or dance or, you know, do do the same, do at the same time, man. Yeah. Chop that wood listening to, you know, sound of music. That's what I do. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? Like neither makes you more or makes you less of a man. Like they're not mutually exclusive. Like all of it is, is all encompassing. <laughs> One of the more, you know, I remember we had a conversation a little bit about grind culture on Twitter. We did. God, I love that culture. (laughs) And, you know, I think for young men, it is something that really is gravity. Like we gravitate towards that because there is something about us wanting to be successful or being all like reaching our potential, being all that we can be. And to an extent, like I'm not totally against this grind culture, you know, I follow, uh, do you know who David, David Goggins is? Yes. Like for me, I love that guy. He gets me fired up. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's more of like a physical type of like get after a guy who just does absurd shit, like runs like a <laughs> hundred miles and, and like breaks his feet, but keeps going to me. Like, I don't really find that a problem to me. I use that as inspiration. Um, I, I, I understand my, might rub some people the wrong way, but you know, I like him, but when I think about grind culture, it's, it's a reflection on what you out, like what you put out there, like has to be meaningful. It has to reach everything you do has to be a part of this thing where you're trying to achieve a goal. I'm not totally against that, but at the same time, one thing we do as men and one thing, this grind culture that really seems to be prevalent among men you know it's not taking the time to reflect on our emotions right like we're supposed to get up super early go to the gym and work all day on our business and do our interviews and podcasts and you know right like everything is supposed to be structured and a part of this ultimate journey but there's no time for self-reflection on how we're feeling on how our emotions are how we're, we're, we're dealing with things, how, what we said or what we did might have affected this other person negatively. You know, there's, there's no time for that. And one thing I found my, myself with this pandemic is I had a lot of time for self-reflection and having in, inside conversations with myself, you know what I mean? Like where like I'm constantly analyzing not only how I'm feeling, but my thoughts. Okay. Why am I thinking this way? How could I have maybe interacted with this person better and i've just found myself to grow so much healthier emotionally and channeling that and and just gaining my emotional intelligence by by recognizing all these internal conversations with myself you know do you do you kind of find the same thing like we as men we we really a lot of us don't take the time to do that and almost not only not take the time but ignore it all the time so uh, one of the the one reason I feel for a lot of men is with the grind culture is the grind culture is a distraction. Yeah. They don't, they don't find comfort with self-reflection because they don't want to relive that experience. They, they don't want to experience emotions. They don't want to feel weak. And, and, and we all like, we know healing is, is scary. Like the healing process can be brutal. So I mm-hmm. feel that some of these men that are constantly speaking with the grinding and the hustling, I think they're distracting themselves from the self-reflection because they don't want to heal. They don't want to go through that healing process and experience those emotions. So they say, you know, work, 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 work. 
and then they become a workaholic and it's like well workaholism is not healthy because you're neglecting taking care of yourself you know taking care of yourself so when i have people that in my life that are workaholics the first thing i ask them is do you have 10 minutes to meditate no i'm, I'm too busy so are you scared of meditation do you not understand it are you scared of the thoughts that you'll have are you scared of the emotions you experience and the most often say yes that they're scared of reliving those moments that are tragic for them or traumatic. And I'm like, okay, so you're using workaholism as an escape. You're using it as a distraction. Okay. So long-term you may have a lot of money, but long-term you're going to be so broken mentally. And one of my, you know, one of the saddening examples is Robin Williams. Like that guy was so successful. He had all the money, but he was missing something. And that's why he vowed depression. He wasn't fulfilled. He had all the money in the world. He had all the financial success. He had all the external success, but there was something internally that he was missing that he just didn't have. And it led to depression, which ultimately led to his unfortunate passing. Uh, there was also another billionaire fashion designer. I can't remember her name, but she passed Kate away. Due to, yeah. She passed away due to suicide as well. Anthony it's like she, like they, they have the money, they have the houses, but they they're missing something internally. And that's why I say life is all about the feel real journey, which is a podcast I'm launching. And it's about constantly putting your mental health as a priority, not money. Money is something money is definitely useful, but it's not everything. And we can learn from a lot of these celebrities that have passed away that, okay, they had money, they had the houses, they had everything, but they were missing something. And I do say that that is also resolved toxic masculinity where you're so focused on, um, I don't want to say this and take it the wrong way, but some women determine men's respect value based on how much money they make per hour mm-hmm. or their jobs or their house. If they have their own house, if they're stable and it's like, why what are they we can provide. That? Yeah. It's like you have a good guy in front of you, but because you're basing your respect value on how much money he has, you're missing out on a good guy. And it's like, and then they'll complain that they, they can't find any good guys. And it's like, well, it's because you are high standard and you are high maintenance. So it's like, Stop putting so much pressure on, on us men. We have breakdowns too. That's why 71% of suicides is men because we have no one to talk to until now, until we, you know, guys like yourself and myself that say, Hey, you want to cry? Call me and we'll cry together. I don't care because I am sick and tired of this whole mentality of let's be a man. How about let's be human. Let's be real. Like, yeah, let's be honest. It's not just men who perpetuate toxic masculinity. You know, it, it, it it's, it's just like how cult, like our society and our culture teaches women that, you know, their value is based on their appearance, that, you know, whatever kind of thing you, you want, like that they have to be skinny or that they have to be, they can't be assertive because that's bitchy, right? Like society and culture as a whole teaches men that, yeah, like it's not okay to cry, that we have to be strong, that we have to provide. And it's, it's you know, as men, we don't, definitely don't help ourselves and, dismantling that in a lot of cases but there are you know sometimes yeah with dating and women it also it also perpetuates that thing so like as a society we have to work together it can't just be you know one gender or the other or one race or the other or one one thing or the other like we all have to come together and work to etch out these problems as a whole it's it's not just going to be one or or the other and you know, one thing I, when I was talking to Tad Melmine, when we talk about bullying, 
you know, it's interesting how bullying affects men and women differently because men, it's very kind of torturous and it's very physical. Whereas with women, it's very manipulative. It's very, very malicious. Yeah. It's so malicious. They might not punch you in the face, but they'll stab you in the back. Whereas men, you know, will just come right up and punch you in the face. Like, you know, it's a very general statement, but in a lot of cases it's true, especially as younger Uh kids. Did you, go through that as a child, especially going through, you know, what you were going through with ADHD and, and with your concussions and really trying to navigate this own, your own journey here mentally, you know, that that's obviously probably going to present a, a, a challenge with other kids and, and, and everything in the schoolyard because kids don't understand that at all. They just might think you're the weird kid. Which I was yeah. like, um, my fiance Claudia has known me since 1998. So she's known me since grade eight. And she told me, she's like, Dave, when you were in junior high and high school, you were intimidating in the sense that I was okay with being alone. I was okay with, you know, I've had a couple of good friends in high school and junior high, one of which was uh, passed away due to suicide in 2004 because he was bullied for his, uh, his sexual orientation. But mm. overall I became such a bitter negative child that I didn't care about relationships with people. I didn't care about friends. I didn't care about being popular or any of that kind of stuff because I saw how the popular kids were. And I was like, I don't want to be like that where I'm a popular jock and I'm just disrespectful and cocky and arrogant. I also didn't want to be that popular nerd that knew everything and knew all the answers and was forced to be smart. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be me. And I was made fun of up until about grade 11, that's when I started losing weight and hitting the gym hard for playing football and preparing for professional wrestling. When that happened, I gained so much self-confidence where I was like, you know what? I'm not going to tolerate any more BS. And it came to the point where there was a lot of talk about like, especially in football, if you're not hitting hard enough, you're, you're a wimp. If you are injured and you sit out, you're a wimp. Like that's why I had three concussions in football. Cause I just, I was forced to be like, no, just back and play. Like when I dislocated my shoulder for the first time in a jamboree game, I popped it back in and I was like, what just happened? And I was like, oh, whatever. I was just ignore it. Then I popped out again. I had over 180 dislocations in my right shoulder in one oh year God. because I just, I kept doing the whole wall. I called it the uh, detective Riggs in lethal weapon. When he'd pop his shoulder, he just popped back in and using it against a wall. I did that all the time in school. I just walked by a locker and pop it in. I didn't care because I was like, you know what? It was a weird mindset. I didn't care about impressing people, but at the same time I did in my actions where it's like, why did I foolishly pop my shoulder back in? Cause it made me look tough. Okay. So I did care what people think. And that's why I tell people all the time when people say, I don't care what people think. Yes, you do. We all do. It's a human nature. We all care what people think. It's just a matter of prioritizing who you care about the most that thinks about you like most importantly you should care about how your family feels because you love your family you respect your family as compared to average joel you don't know so it's a matter of who do i care about the most when they share their opinions like who influences me the most and when you're going through high school and junior high that's so confusing because when you hit 12 years old they're saying psychologically you focus on more on your friends than you do your parents 
So that's when, when kids are 12 or 13 and a parent says, Hey, you should do this because of this, the kid's like, okay, whatever. But if the friend said the exact same piece of advice, they will listen to their friend more than their parents. So it's like, there's so much psychology that people are going through that people don't understand. Like, is it toxic masculinity or is it a lack of self-esteem? Is it because of bullying? Is it because of a home environment? Like there's so many different, you know, different variables that explain what people are going through. And there's that saying of everything happens for a reason. I strongly believe everyone acts away for a reason. Like I used to be called the why guy when I, when I was coaching I was called the, you know, the why coach. I always wanted to know why, why, why you did this, why you believe that. And then toxic masculinity is, was one of the most popular reasons for the, the youth boys that I coached. I feel I have to be strong. I feel I have to do this. So there's so much pressure on kids growing up. Like should a boy take shot class or could he take home ec? Right. That's a very popular question amongst, amongst fathers. Oh, your son's in home ec. Why? Why isn't he in shop class learning how to use tools? Because my son likes to cook. I'm sorry. Is that not a reliable resource to have when you grow up is the ability to cook for yourself? Does that not make you a good man that you can cook for your husband, your, your wife and your kids? Like it's just, and then, and then comes the, the um, gender specific roles. Yeah. Right. And that's a whole nother discussion. Cause it's like, you don't want, women want to feel equal, which I completely support. Okay. So let's say your husband comes home from a long day at work and there's a one big of garbage. Will you take the big garbage out for him or will you expect him to do it because he's a man? So it's like, it comes to the point where gender specific roles have to be non-existent too, where the husband can do dishes and clean, where the husband can help with the baby and do laundry. Like we gotta, it's just, uh, it's a matter of let's focus less on being men and focus less on being women and just be human. Just, just help each other. Like why we have to have this gender specific roles with everything, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, it seems there's no different answers or easy answers. Cause <laughs> There never is. Well, because, you know, on, on some senses or some instances, some people want there to be that difference uh, and that could be for positive or negative reasons. And then mm -hmm. other times, you know, it, it's because, yeah, you do, do you want to be human, right? I guess it's just understanding who your partner is and having open communication, but I, I did want to kind of touch on something that I missed a little bit earlier, but it, it goes kind of into our conversation so with your when you were going through your concussions you mentioned that there's a strong link with your adhd um and, and concussions and does it give you make you more prone what i'm kind of curious is so as you're growing up and everything we just talked about did you know your diagnosis of adhd in the combination with it maybe progressing or getting worse with the concussions like did that does that, did that contribute to these feelings of, you know, low self-esteem? Did it contribute to, you know, not fully being able to embrace certain parts of your, your personality or, you know, when we talk about the toxic masculinity, right? Like, did, did, was that a factor in, in how you were growing up and how you were developing? 100% because yeah. I felt that I, I had no interest in cars. I had no interest in working with tools and building houses and electricity and being an electrician and plumbing. But a lot of people in my life were like, well, you should get into those trades and make a lot of money. It's like, but I don't have any interest in those, but it'll make you more masculine. It'll make you be able to take care of your family better. Okay. So, 
And then it was just, it was a constant struggle with internal beliefs. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to learn how to build a house. My mentality is I would rather pay someone who has a business to build houses and help them take care of their family than me to try to do it myself and screw it all up. And then my family's at risk because now our house is having defectiveness or defective issues everywhere. So it was definitely a struggle because I have a lot of, I have a lot of weaknesses. That's the truth. I have a lot of weaknesses. And as a result of my weaknesses, I have to adapt to my lifestyle in a certain way that helps me stay calm, that helps me stay feeling happy and that I have value and worth. And when I'm in the position where I'm forced to do something that I don't feel I need to do, it usually leads to an argument or a confrontation, which affects relationships, which affects so much um, emotionally because I felt like I was always fighting. I felt like I was always arguing. I couldn't just be, you know, I I couldn't just be happy. I couldn't just be content. I had to always fight with someone saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Yes. I agree. That would make me more of a man, but it doesn't align with who I am. Oh, well, you're just a bit of a, you know, a big wimp dead. Okay. Like it got to the point where it was just so annoying to constantly feel like I was on the, the defensive as opposed to living an offensive lifestyle where I could just be happy and not being forced to do something I didn't want to do. Like I can use tools for small minor projects, but if I have to, you know, help build a garage, I'm sorry. I'm going to be a weak a member of that, that, that team more than I would be a positive one. So it's just a matter of me being a jerk again. And, and my fiance would say the same thing. She's like, Dave, you are such a jerk, but in a positive way, because I'm protecting myself. I'm a jerk because I have to protect myself. And that's a mindset I've developed of decades of constantly fighting with people and arguing and being defensive. So now my family and I are closer because I'm not defensive no more because they know who I am. They know, okay, don't make that suggestion to Dave. So one of my biggest struggles I have that I, I don't really speak much often is I can never drive a vehicle. The reason why mm. I've been told I may not be able to drive a vehicle is because I have random busy spells. I have anxi- high anxiety. Um, when I was in brain Ridge rehab, they found that I could not multitask. So for example, I could not cook breakfast and watch my son at the same time when he was younger. I had to do one or the other. So they're like, well, if you're driving, how can you drive while talking to your children in the back? Or how can you drive and turn the music down? Or how can you drive and, you know, make sure groceries don't fall? Like, how can I drive and watch other drivers and make sure they're not swerving? Like, they said that my attention span is so affected that basically what they said to me was what I see takes a while to be comprehended with my brain. So Mm -hmm. I may see the, for example, let's say the light goes from red to green. I may see that the light changes the green, but I may not comprehend. Oh shoot. The light changed. Like there's a delay there sometimes. So they felt that with me driving, it's a very serious risk. And even at 35 years old, I still people saying, oh, you don't drive. Come on, suck it up. And it's like, do you want me to put my family at risk or myself or any other driver on the street? Because that's what's going to happen. Like I can't multitask. I can't cook supper and do something else. I always burn my supper all the time. And they're like, oh, so you can never drive. I'm like, I'm okay with it. I've accepted the fact that I may never drive again. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard raising kids in the winter and having to, you know, put the stroller on the bus in the wintertime, but I adapted because that's just what, that's the way I've always lived my life is through the power of, of adaptation. 
overcoming struggles on a daily basis. So there was a lot of fighting and a lot of arguing. And as a result, I became a jerk in a positive sense of I do what I do to protect myself as a way to not have to fight with you all the time. And people who know me go, okay, we understand that, you know, that's Dave protecting himself, not Dave being a jerk because he hates me or he disagrees. I'm very, very bullheaded because I have to be because my energy level is different than yours or my anxiety level is different or my mental health struggles allow me to have different struggles than you. So it's just a matter of knowing what you need to do and doing it. And as a result of that, risk losing relationships. It's just, unfortunately, it it's a part of the journey of having a mental health illness where you're not going to be able to be friends with everybody. Yeah. I think the, the biggest theme of this whole episode is we, we go through kind of like, I mean, not your entire life, but most of your life is this, this theme of like a healing journey. And this is something we talked about yesterday. And I think it's a, a perfect kind of way to, to wrap this conversation up because you mentioned some great things and your experience as a life coach really, you know, had some good insight on it, but the, the question I asked, and I'll ask it again, was one of the things, you know, we're both part of the mental health community. We're both advocates, speakers. So we were exposed to a lot of different types of mental illnesses and mental health issues and people who are in that community. Other, there's a lot that kind of fall into this, this category where there's people who really want to heal. They want to get better or at least make their life better. The, we, we talk about all the things we do to try to get better and, and, and all those things and, and use our experiences to inspire and empower others. And on the other hand, you have sort of people who, you know, like, oh, that's bullshit. Oh, that doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. Right. They, they, they kind of make their entire life about their illness. And it's, it's a much more, and, and I understand that mental illness, you know, just does that naturally to our brains and puts that in our position. So it's not a blame, but that it's like, the, the reason I ask is because I'm always afraid to kind of sometimes talk about certain aspects of my mental illness and mental health. Like I don't like necessarily talking about how exercises really help me because I know there's people who will be like, well, I can't exercise because I'm too depressed. So don't tell me to exercise. So like, I don't like talking about that. So like the question I have for you and what we talked about is like, how do you try to bring those people who are in that negative space who kind of refuse the help or, or avoid the help? And how do you bring them over to this, this place where it's like, no, like let's heal together. Let's, let's, you know, empower each other and try to make your life a better place and, and, empower you to live your life in a more fulfilling way? So the first thing that I focus on is how I word my, my um, tweets, my statuses is in the past, I was very aggressive with it. Yeah. And then I realized, wait a minute, this is kind of productive. So I got to focus on how I speak. So what I do now is I share what works for me while sharing my story, my struggle that I'm going through. So for example, on a bad day, which I don't like the word bad day because it makes it sound like the whole 24 hours is, is bad, but it's, you know, it's some moments. So when I, when I have a test moment or a test day where it's like, you know what, today I'm being tested, I'll, I'll share it. I'll say, okay, you know what guys, today's a test day where I'm battling finding the motivation. However, here's what I usually do to get that motivation. So that way they don't feel like I'm saying I'm better than you 
or they don't feel like I'm saying do this or you suck. It's more like, okay, Dave is sharing his struggle, which is, which is, you know, building relatability. And then he shares what he does. Okay. Well, I've never tried meditation and meditation is a very misunderstood resource because people think that it's a one and done where you can meditate one day and it's good. No, unfortunately, I studied mindfulness and I got certified in 2019. And the truth matters is it takes eight weeks of consistent daily meditation for your brain to be positively affected by it. However, the evidence is there. Some schools are replacing the tension with meditation now. Some prisons are replacing um, disciplinary actions with meditation. And they're, they're finding that a lot of inmates are showing a lot more empathy. Now they're showing a lot more self-awareness and self-regulation. Same thing with schools. So it's like meditation works. It's just a matter of, there's a lot of skeptics and a lot of uh, misunderstandings. So I try to make sure that my, my posts are a, to share relatability B to share what I do just to open their eyes to be like, okay, well, I know Dave has battled chronic pain for 15 plus years and now he's pain free for one year. So maybe what he's doing actually works and I'm just being stubborn. And it's like, yeah, that that's self-sabotage when you're allowing personal opinions to go over what can help you. That's self-sabotage. And I tell people all the time, you know, you have to have an open mind. You have to have an open mind. I didn't believe in meditation for many, many years until I had a lot of friends share their stories. I'm like, okay, I'm being stubborn here. And as a result, I'm missing out on a huge opportunity of, of growth. So I put a, aside my ego and I was like, I'll try it out. And I tried it out for consistently eight weeks. And I was like, holy cow, this helped me tremendously. So the, the advice I give to people about sharing is, is storytelling. Just don't come across as if you're telling them what to do. Just share what you do. Just share your story, share your struggles, share how you deal with it. And eventually they'll naturally say, okay, you know what, Ryan, I've been watching your tweets and your stories and how it's been helping you. I want to give it a shot. And then you can be like, okay, I could be the person that tells them what to do, or you can be what I call a networker where you know what, I've been doing this meditation. It's been helping me. However, I will connect you with a guy named this person and he can help you with the with meditation mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the awareness or like Pam Fitzgerald, who's also a part of yeah. the unsinkable family. I love Pam. So it's like one of the biggest struggles I had was trying to be the person that knew everything, yes. trying to be the, trying to be the hero. And I was like, you know what? I can't be the hero for everybody. It goes back to putting everyone else's happiness on my shoulders, which is not good for anybody. So I was like, it's time for me to become the networker you know what? I have a lot of friends who have a lot more experience with meditation. Here's their name. Here's a number contact with them. Boom. I've, I've now networked them. So I totally understand what you're saying with the fear, because I used to have it too, where it's like, am I coming across judgmental? Am I coming across like a commander in chief where it's like, do this or else? Yes, I was. That That's what I was doing. And then I self-reflected and I was like, okay, let's change my wording here. Storytell. And that's it share your story. Um, I'm a huge fan of Gary Vaynerchuk, who's all about storytelling and being kind and being aware of your emotions and just being a great person. And I'm like, that struggle was real for me where I became, I was wanting to be, I wanted to be an authority figure Mm. as opposed to someone who was supportive. So I I don't know if that is relatable to you or that's maybe what you're thinking of like your concern of being judgmental 
or you're trying to figure out how can I, cause sometimes you have to share your story. Like it's like, there's some days where I'm like, you know what, if I share what just happened today, it may inspire someone else or it may piss someone else off. Which one do I do? Watch how I word it. Share as a story. Today I struggled with this. I did this. It worked. I feel great now. Oh, okay. Cause it's, it's, it's non-authoritative. It's, it's more relatable. So if you're struggling with, with the, not trying to be judgmental, just focus on being relatable. Just focus on sharing your story. It's all about storytelling with me. I love sharing my stories. I love the good, the bad, the ugly, because I know it inspires someone. Yeah, it's it's more of like me trying to come across as helpful by just sharing what I do, but that you're going to have negative repercussions. All the time. All um, the time. You know, that it's it's going to be interpreted wrong. Um, there, there was something you mentioned yesterday. What was... And it's not really related, but it kind of is because you talked about empathy. What was it? Oh. What was, it the, what was that thing <laughs> so we were talking? Researchers are finding that because there's a lack of daydreaming, right? Uh, okay. The part of the brain that strengthens and operates empathy is not being focused on. So as a result, the greatest example they shared was teenagers being on social media all day be on their cell phones all day, be on the video games all day, that there's no time for them to sit down and just daydream because daydreaming has been shown that it is extremely crucial that we have times to daydream because when you're daydreaming, you're thinking of things that you don't usually think about like, oh, you know what? Today I was rude to this person. Why was I rude to this person? Or it gives you time to self-reflect and self-heal. So yeah, the, due to the lack of daydreaming, they're finding that we are lacking empathy in society. And I'm like, that makes perfect sense because when you go on YouTube or any social media for general, there's so much negativity, so much toxicity. People are so quick to judge and ridicule and belittle. And I'm like, there is a serious disconnect with empathy. And people are like, well, what's the difference between empathy and sympathy? Well, sympathy is I've been in your position, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to judge you for it. Like, let's say, Ryan, you walk headfirst to a door. Well, I did that before. But what you know? But I paid attention to what I was doing. It's like you're showing sympathy for what happened to them, but with empathy, it's I've been there. How can I help you? Mm. As opposed, to, like empathy is without judgment. It's without ridicule. And when you make a mistake, like yesterday, you shared how you deleted all their stuff by accident. <laughs> um, not to try to call anyone out, but one no. of the comments was, "Now you learned your hard way." Okay, thank you. Like. I'm well aware of that now. And you see that all the time where people leave comments like, well, this is why you do this, or this is why you do that, or this is why I do this. And it's like, whoa, like, why are you making this about you all of a sudden? It's because there's no, there, there's no empathy. There's no like, Hey, you're a human. You make mistakes. It's all like, well, I did that and I did better, or I did that and I did this. And it's like, okay, this isn't about you versus me. It's about me being a human and I made a mistake. Like I deleted a lot of stuff on my laptop. That's why I was so empathetic with you when you said, Hey Dave, I fucked up. Hey. I was yeah. like, dude, I've been there. I've been there before. I've done it. I could have been like, Ryan, I've been there before, but this is why you do this. And I could just like totally just like judged you completely and made you feel like shit. But otherwise, I'm like, no, I'm gonna show him empathy and say, you know what, Ryan? I've been there, buddy. It's all good. We can reschedule. No big deal. And I appreciate it immensely because, yeah, that's like an embarrassing thing to have to like. <laughs> I knew when you messaged me, I was like, this guy has probably been wanting to message me for three hours. 
Yeah. But how because I tried to fix everything. <laughs> I was like trying to fix everything. I'm like, no, I can get it back. And then I, when I found but then it, you're I'm like, like it's Dave, the guy that's always seen about emotional intelligence. I'm like, yeah, yeah. The, oh, emotional intelligence. I wanted to bring up that empathy part because it 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 just it's powerful. Goes, it is, and it's important to recognize and goes into our entire conversation because you know, without empathy, I think we just we lacked the the respect and and the 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 understanding of, of everybody and all of our own struggles. And I think that's just one of the major themes of this whole, this whole conversation is just, you know, we're, we're trying to, I think you just give a good display on like how to be just a good, good, good human, you know, just. Yeah. If uh, the best example I can give that could be general and people could all understand is people videotaping other people making mistakes, laughing at them. Oh yeah. And then they post them on Facebook. Like I saw a person take a video of a guy in the gym who was doing a workout completely wrong and he recorded it and put it on Facebook, making fun of him. I'm like, okay, how hard would it have been to not record that, walk over and say, hey, buddy, you're doing this wrong. Let me teach you. Now I understand that there's that concern of, well, what the person's defensive or feels like I'm being arrogant. Yeah, but I'd rather them be upset with me trying to help than be upset with me because I post them on social media, making fun of them. So that's a huge example of current lack of empathy is we have people filming people making mistakes or making a foolish decision and just blasting them on social media. And it's like, that's a huge disconnect for me where it's like, okay, there's so much video content of people being made fun of and less content of people helping. And that's a huge indicator of a lack of empathy where if your natural impulse is <laughs> Ryan's being an idiot and I'm going to film him and post it on social media for views. If that's your natural impulse, that's a problem. That's a huge problem for like your internal awareness of like how much empathy are you lacking that you feel it's okay to make fun of someone that you don't even know on social media and then brag that, Oh, my video got a million views. Yeah. Awesome. You successfully embarrassed someone for personal gain. Be proud of that. So it's just daydream people. Take some time to daydream and build that empathy, please. It, you know, just quickly that it's not only the funny videos, but people are filming like car accidents or tragedies. Oh. Like that's the first instinct now. If everyone's like, let me get it on my phone. It's like, no, help the dude or fucking run. <laughs> like, anyway. Use your um, phone to call 911, damn yeah, it. <laughs> it's, I don't, whatever. But uh, listen, man, uh, I appreciate you uh, rescheduling with me and having this conversation again. Um, we didn't get into the music part this part, so that that that's just good. for us. But uh, I love the I love <laughs> some of the other stuff we 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 touched on today. That was it was different. So um, I know you're everywhere, kind of on social media. You got the podcast coming out soon. Um, where can people find you and and find all that information? Totally. So I, I think the easiest way for search optimization is just a hashtag, which is hashtag Dave Body B O D D Y. You post that hashtag anywhere, you'll find me everywhere. Um, like I said, I, I restarted all my social media. So don't be like, oh my goodness, he only has 53 followers on Twitter. <laughs> Trust me. Don't worry about the followers. Worry about the content. I post some relatable content daily because I just love storytelling. So you can find me everywhere, literally everywhere. Even Snapchat, which I don't like, but I'm there too. <laughs> Smart. Um, well, man, you have some great articles on Medium. I know you put one out yesterday that was really good that I, I used to reference for this conversation. Um your community champion along with me for unsinkable love so, unsinkable. Yeah. You're, you're, you're everywhere. You're doing great work. And uh, I really appreciate you joining me and sharing some of the stuff today. 
And as a reciprocation, I will have you as a guest on Field Road Journey. Don't you worry. Oh, can't wait already. Have a good, <laughs> turn the tables on me. I love it. And I, I'll make sure that the, when we record the episode, I won't delete it, okay? <laughs> Yo, I'm so worried right now that once I stop this, I'm like, fucking, you better work. Don't I delete anything. <laughs> All right, buddy. Right, thank you so we'll much. Thanks, man. <laughs> oh, God. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole.